2: Gas, 4, one, two, three, four, five. I'm gonna cook a meal that's gonna make you mine. I'm turning up the oven now. We're ready to roast. When you touch me, honey, you're loving the most. Come on and put me in your loving shoes.
1: Welcome to another BritFitz.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Rachel Newsome. Welcome to the show. Hi, Stuart. Good to see you. Been a while. I, for the audience's benefit, I will say your was my editor at the Arts and Culture magazine, Days are Confused, back when I first moved to London in 2000. How long had you been in London at that point?
3: I probably, in 2000, I'd probably been in London about six years. Yeah. I was in London uh, for 16 years altogether, and now I live in uh, a bohemian enclave of West Yorkshire called Tomberdon.
1: Indeed it is. Indeed, there's a lot of clogs there. Um,
3: You can still hear the echoes of the ghosts of mill workers past.
1: (laughs) Well, now, Rachel, you now teach creative writing at the University of Salford and Leeds Art University, and you recently completed a PhD in applying Jungian psychoanalysis to creative writing. And you're passionate about sharing accessible writing techniques and creative strategies to support growth and well-being in others. Something we'll touch on at the end of the podcast, because we're going to do three films that impacted everything in your adult life. As the show, but before we do that, I want to talk to you about accessible writing techniques in terms of teaching writing. Uh, and as someone that has, I mean, and this is a loaded thing because it's so, as someone who's kind of retrained himself in many ways, and I do not talk myself in the third person or anything. You know, I've gone from journalist to screenwriter in the last fifteen years. But you as a you as a tutor and as a lecturer. Rather than say, how do you teach it? What I'd like to ask the way around is go, what makes a good creative writing student and what does that student have to bring to tutorials?
3: Ah, that is a great question, Stuart. Thank you for asking it. And also thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's an absolute honour and delight. Uh, what makes a great creative writing student an open mind? Um, curiosity. Um, a willingness to drop everything that they thought they wanted to do and... Um, to be to allow themselves to be surprised you know really it's it's not about talent you know we were talking to go straight into jungian psychoanalysis um you know according to the jungian worldview uh, the psyche uh, we're all innately creative um you know and the problem isn't whether you're talented or not whether you're creative or not it's whether you're cut off from your creativity whether you've lost that connection and um arguably modern society as we understand it this sort of uh, neoliberal consumer capitalist society that we're part of. Um unfortunately, uh, because it privileges uh reason, it privileges um intellectual forms of knowing, you know, we're we're currently um in in a kind of socio-political landscape where we've got a government that's waging an ideological war against the arts and humanities. Um, you know, and, and it's framing them as soft subjects and yeah not important to daily life but according to young creativity is absolutely essential to psychological wholeness and well-being um and so really you know for a create back to creative writing students it's really about um a willingness to undergo uh that transformative process whether whether a student consciously knows that or not and probably they don't but you know the students that I have the best engagement with are always the students who are willing to take risks who are willing to let go of their attachment to what it is they think they want to write in order to kind of engage with the uncertainty and the ambiguity of not knowing and exploring.
1: And and that's something that I stumbled on if I'm honest with you um it's the idea of throwing yourself into something and see what happens when you come out, as opposed to the kind of... And what I've begun to see is the way you're taught in school is you do a report, you do a piece of work, and you're marked for it. There's The idea that you've grown or you've evolved as part of that process is neither in or there. It's just to get to the end of the work and hand it in on a certain date.
3: You're absolutely right, Stuart. And, and obviously, we both inherit students as tutors in higher education. who yep. have come through the system... And, you know, for, for me as a tutor, what I'm really trying to get them to, to um, engage with is a process of unlearning and deconditioning mm. and letting go of this, again, this very, this, what I would call highly toxic, binary, patriarchal, uh, super, you know, idea uh, of there's such a thing as right and wrong. Yes. Uh, and getting it right. I need to get it right, you know, which produces, uh, you know, really torturous, uh um, procrastination in a lot of uh, young people, it produces a fear of failure. But as we know, failure is part of experiment.
1: Indeed it is. One of my big, one of my big discoveries was that there's a book called Art and Fear uh, by a fine art lecturer called Ted Orland. I can't remember who he wrote it with. And in it, he cites a, a case study he did with his students where he split them in half and he said, right, you half of the class, you're going to make as many ceramic pots as you can And you, half of the class, are going to make the perfect ceramic pot. Unsurprisingly to you, as what you'll know now, is that all the interesting work came from the people who just produced as many pots as they could. And obviously the pursuit of the perfect pot meant they were just stuck and couldn't do it at all, couldn't do anything. And that idea of doing it in your writing, it feels very very counterintuitive, but it, it becomes... The intuitive way to get better writing, in the end,
3: absolutely, and it means that writing by default is is a therapeutic process because you're coming up against these blocks and mm. these resistances, and and you know I um, really struggle with perfectionism, <laughs> you know, for myself. That you know, so as a teacher, it's about um, modelling vulnerability, you know, and being transparent about my own processes. And my own blocks and fears and resistances, as a way to model to the students how they can negotiate their own blocks and
1: resistances.
3: And I think that students are really responsive to that when you because it's speaking their language.
1: Okay, what are the kind of techniques then that you do to help? As you display in that as a as an like lead by example, but then what do you do to get them to realise that it's possible?
3: Currently. Um, I've been teaching on the writing workshop uh, on the MA, uh, the fantastic MA at the University of Salford. Mm. And the writing workshop really is a great place to cultivate a spirit of experiment and exploration. And I think cultivation is the key word here. It's not about me leading from the front. If anything, for me at that, you know, in a writing workshop situation, it's about decentering myself mm. as a teacher. And really it's about teaching is facilitation and holding a space, um, You know, and you're talking about um, a learning experience in which um, students come from a di- di- you know, diverse range of backgrounds. Uh, there's a range of neurodiversity, a range of gender identifications and sexuality, a range of cultural and ethnic backgrounds. So really it's about me holding a space for those students to feel safe to feel that they can show up as they are, um, and also to listen, to listen to what it is they're trying to say mm. and then engage with them on that level and, and give them, you know, so much of it is about uh, confidence, you know, and creating a space where they feel okay to be vulnerable and okay to fail.
2: Mm.
3: Um, and, you know, that's where, the, that's where it's, it's not teaching so much as um, a process of creative engagement and listening and facilitation.
1: Well, I mean, I must admit, I, I did a one-off class with a bunch of third-year acting students who had like a, a short script writing module. And obviously, as part of being an actor is is learning to be vulnerable and be on show and stuff. So it was the opposite to any writing class I've ever done because I was like, so who wants to uh, who wants to read out the work they've done? Like, we just done like a half-hour speed writing exercise. And then there was like a bit of a kind of, oh. And it was like, what? And said, can't we all read them out? And I'm like, wow.
3: <laughs> I mean, one of the things we do is we do we do um, peer feedback. Yeah. So everybody shares their work. Um, but I instigated a technique of rather than people critiquing each other's work, we all ask questions, mm-hmm. which actually mirrors the therapeutic process. So, you know, rather than saying, I think you should do this, or I didn't like that, or I didn't, you know, this didn't work for me. You simply ask a question. What did you mean when you... Uh, you know, by the use of this metaphor, or what were you trying to say when you did this? Yeah, and it, and it prompts the writer to uh, have an encounter with themselves and go, you know, think a bit more about their own intuitive processes and maybe articulate something that was unconscious. Um, you know, so that that is, if you like, if you if you're looking for teaching techniques,
1: no, but that, but that but that's that's like script. That's very much script development. Script development is always about questions, not instructions, yeah. because. You've got, a, you've got a development exec talking to a writer. So it's really, it's not two writers talking. It's somebody who needs you to walk away and make it make it better. Absolutely. But
3: And, you know, so it's teaching, it's modelling to students, not just asking questions, but asking the right question. Hmm. And it's through the process of critiquing each other that they are able to engage more deeply with their own work. So they're learning about the writing process through critiquing, critiquing others. So it's not just about, the feedback they get but the feedback they give is all part of the learning process
1: yeah because I think I think that the hardest thing when you come to it fresh is the the notion that you could intend to do something which is really honorable execute it badly and then the questions that come up get you nearer to a better execution so what yes. so you articulate in your intent when the questions are good they yes. go the people then and say well that's not there they go okay right my intent isn't there but well, my intent is still true
3: you know and it's problem solving mm. you know um really creativity is problem solving uh and because creativity you know again in jungian terms um the child archetype is is symbolizes the creative impulse and children don't know the difference between right and wrong
2: mm.
3: and and if they see a problem or, or it's not seen as a problem it's just something to be got around You know, and that's, it's so, so there's always a solution. It might not be what you think it is, but it's, it's a way of looking at, you know, looking at uh, a situation from every angle to see what's the way around it. Uh, And also um, in Jungian terms, symbolically water is the element that symbolizes creativity because water always finds a path. It's flow, it always finds a way.
1: Okay. I interviewed a guy who wrote a book called Psychology for Screenwriters, which is, he actually uses the the Jung, Nietzsche, and Freud to look at how psychological psychology understanding is present in drama, and and my convers and he's a trained clinical psychologist and he said he, it's the first time I've ever heard the idea that whenever we're writing, whether I'm writing about an eight year old who's lost in a supermarket or a general wanting to start World War III, I'm always writing about myself, and I was like, yes. that's freaking me out now, but. the more I I think about it, the truer that becomes.
3: Yes, because we only have ourselves to draw on, but again, linking it to Jung, Mm. uh, Jung conceptualises the psyche um, as a thinking mind, which we might understand as our ego, Mm. the part of us that show up in the world. Uh, And it's our ego that creates personas and mass and as a way to navigate everyday life. Uh, We also have a personal unconscious, um, but then what differentiates Jung from Freud? Obviously, Jung, or we understand uh, that Jung was a pupil of Freud, whereas whereas Freud felt that the self uh, was a contained individual uh, and and that the personal unconscious is essentially a repository Mm. of all your psychic junk, junk, a bit of a psychic cesspit. Jungian uh, psychoanalysis um, sees the self as being a sum composed of uh, a larger whole, and that, uh, that's collected to what Jung identifies as a collective unconscious. Now, the collective unconscious uh, is populated by the archetypes, which are inherited instincts that are universal. So hence, you can kind of draw on these archetypes facets, archetype facets within yourselves yeah. to write about all these different personalities and personas that are both within you but also exist outside of you and the other thing about the psyche that is fascinating and radical and as i understand it is you know whereas it's it's uh it's fundamental like i said at the start of the podcast it's fundamentally creative you know it's the it's 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 our uh, if you like, uh, it's, it's like a giant universal image bank that's constantly generating symbols and Im- images. You know, it's a source of our imagination. And it means that it's an, obviously, entomologically, it's it's the root of the word, imagination. You know, it comes from images. You know, so this is what's generating images, dreams, visions, imagination, is what we all get to tap into um, through through accessing the unconscious which creativity is, is one of those portals into it. You know, Any creative practice is a portal into the
1: unconscious. Well, it's, I mean, you say it a lot better than I, I ever could because I'm not as learned in these things. But I do say to my students, oh, we are trying to trick ourselves to get into the subconscious and find the yes. good stuff. And however we achieve that, we'll, we'll get the best work out of ourselves.
3: Yes, yes. And quite often, and this is the hard bit, this is, you know, it's so simple and yet so hard. It's it's um, getting out of the way of your ego, getting out of the way, you know, the, the part of you that wants to be perfect, that wants to be right, mm. that is, 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 needs to know all of the answers immediately, needs to know, you know, I have students who've, who micro plan everything right up to the ending, you know, but inevitably those stories are never going to feel alive. Yeah. You know, so it's about, you know, but it's scary to dive into the unknown and to, you know that, and that's you know when you talk about teaching creative writing, really, it's about guiding you know a young a, a student through that process that that can be quite terrifying. Yeah. You know, their you know, guide through that, and and you know we all have unconscious blind spots. You know, uh, we all we all need support in in in, in embarking on this incredibly um, psychologically difficult and challenging process.
1: Oh, I totally agree. I mean, something. I, li- I made a list of stuff when, when I emailed you, uh, messaged you before. Like, readers, friends, peers are just, are not just sounding boards, but they're also comfort blankets as well. I find that 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 what I'm thinking isn't the stupidest thing in the world, because if yeah. they can reflect back something that sounds good to me, then I'm on the right path. Or they might go, "But what have you thought about this?" Yeah. And suddenly you're like, oh, I've grown now. I've grown this. This idea's grown now. And all I've done. I mean, what's he called? Uh, Burroughs talks about the third mind, don't he? The minute two people talk, a third, a third thing is a, a third person is created by the two minds talking together. And I find that real. I find that a really valuable part of the process for me. You've still got to go when be on your own and write. But I remember early on when I used to listen to interviews with with writers, and they'd say, I didn't write anything down. I just talk about my story to anyone that would listen and get feedback on what I'm saying. And then the bits that stayed with me were the bits that I ended up writing about. And I would just yeah. lose stuff because they were they became unimportant.
3: Absolutely. You know, and, and it speaks to this idea that creativity is a process. And, and it's a relational process. And even though you might be individually responsible for putting words on a page, mm. those words at the tip of the iceberg, they're the product of all those relationships, all those conversations, all those ideas. Yeah. You know, we're very we're porous. Uh, and this porousness um, is is what connects us to others and connects us to the collective unconscious.
1: I mean, I, I went, I did a piece of work over over lockdown, which was genuinely cathartic, and I never knew that you could do this with writing, and it was a really interesting experience for me because obviously we're all locked down, we couldn't go anywhere, and at one point my mum was was in hospital for a for anemia, and she's fine now, everything's you know great, but but at the time I couldn't leave London to go to Manchester to see my parents. My dad couldn't go and see her in hospital, so, you know, it was proper lockdown. And I wrote a story that was about a Northwest woman and all of her kind of stoic and empathetic qualities of the kind of Northwest woman that I grew up around was the central character of this story that I wrote. And that's become a script that's gone a long way. But that's the starting point is that character. And I just wrote it because I thought I could be close to my mum in my writing, which if you'd have told me that 10 years ago, I'd, I'd have laughed at you. But yes. it really worked. Yes, I don't know where that fits in on the on the on what the subconscious is doing or not doing, but it was doing two things. I was creating a story, but I was also making myself feel better about the inability to see my mum and see if she's all right.
3: It correlates to this Jungian idea of active imagination. Okay, where we uh, use the process of fictionalization to access. Uh, the unconscious and, and to kind of dialogue with the figures there. So, you know, whether it was your mother, you know, your biological mother or whether it was the mother archetype as it exists within your internal constellation of yeah. sub-personalities, you know, and no doubt what appeared on the page was a combination of
1: both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, that's been enlightening to say the least. And I wish I could talk about it more, but, uh... I have to move into the move the podcast along and get us talking about some films. Uh, sure. We'll return to some of the stuff you're doing over the summer. Um, but first of all, we're going to do your three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Are you ready for this, Rachel?
3: I'm ready for this. Okay.
1: Well, look, very quickly, before I uh, we embark on it, just to give the person who might be tuning in for the first time some familiarity to the rules, Rachel has kind of given me three films I've I've got them in the order that you've given me, and that's date order release as well. And we're going to spend five minutes talking about why this film is important to Rachel. And every time the five minutes come up, we're going to hear this sound. And that's when we stop. Now, I'm not going to tell you to shut up at at that point, but, you know, you can stop on a dime if you want. It's very much up to you. Or you can finish your thought, and we do, often it bleeds over a bit when there's a point being made. But essentially, it's... It's, it's so we can spend at least five minutes on each one, rather than 15 minutes on one and then there's two other films that I like. That sound okay to you, Rachel? Sounds great. Fantastic. Right then. Five minutes and counting, we're going to start with David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Do you want to tell us where, where, where did you first see that film for... for-
3: I, I have seen this film so many times, Stuart, uh, that I, could, I can't even remember the first time I saw I Probably I saw it in the cinema when it came out when I was living in London in mm. 2001. And the reason I've chosen it is because it continues to haunt me. It compels me. And, you know, I love David Lynch as a director and as a writer who's um, exploring how I can engage with the unconscious. You know, uh, I think David Lynch provides—he um, shines a real light on—and does it cinematographically, cinematographically so well. Mm. This idea um, he, he gets across so well in Mulholland Drive, how the past haunts the present, and this kind of Meba strip-like slip, slippage between multiple realities and when I first watched it I had no idea about Jungian psychoanalysis you know this would have been over 20 years ago Um, and but it was something that uh, I just instinctively um, wanted to wrestle with and couldn't work out and and obviously that's what Lynch wants you to do he wants you to wrestle with it and fundamentally you know if I fast forward now that I do understand Jungian psychoanalysis. To me, this is a film about the shadow and the shadow archetype. And, you know, people talk about what does it mean? You know, uh, are the two characters of of Naomi Watts and Laura Harding, as they um, are manifest first with Naomi Watts as Betty and then Diane Selwyn and for Laura Harding, Rita and Camilla Rhodes, you know, um, are they, you know, fantasies of each other, you know, for me, I feel like we're not supposed to know who they are. That is the point. We're not supposed to, you know, the mystery isn't the mystery of what happened to these two lovers. The mystery is um, what their relationship says about the fundamental mystery of reality. And, you know, what fascinates me about this film is the way that Lynch uses the landscape of Hollywood communicate a liminal space you know to me the entirety of Hollywood as he portrays it uh, and this idea of uh, what's acted what's performed what's real what isn't real to me is an analogy for a liminal space in which fantasy and reality collide and in terms of the Jungian notion of the psych um you know uh Multiple realities exist at once, and to me, that's really what the film is about. It's about this idea of of, of almost this quantum mechanics, this physic, this quantum physical reality of multiple intersecting, alternative worlds uh, that exist in a non-rational, non-linear space. And the exciting thing about this film is that it's inviting the viewer to let go of this need to know. Uh, it's inviting the review, uh, the viewer to enter into this non-rational space. I mean, Jungian terms, nonsense is actually uh, the sense. Nonsense stands in for the intuitive knowledge that's a precognitive knowledge that exists outside of critical thinking, uh, that is a space of intuition and imagination and dreams. You know, and the shadow at the heart of it, and we see the shadow most clearly in the scene, the diner scene at Winky's,
2: mm.
3: where the inspector... Is interviewing this character, we don't even know who he is, and he he sees the shadow. And that's that's to me, that's Lynch. You know, this, you know, he's breaking all the rules, if you like, you know, this idea that the narrative has to signpost to the viewer or the reader, you know, what's happening. You know, there he he sort of throws that signposting out of the window, except he doesn't. He's playing with you. I mean, Lynch arguably uh, is a Jungian trickster archetype. You know, he's he's playing with what's real and what isn't deliberately to make you think about a larger metaphysical uh, idea of reality. And actually the signposting is there in this scene. This scene to me is the key to unlocking the whole movie, which is, uh, is about the collective.
0: Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit DiscoverSouthCarolina.com.
1: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
3: Uh, you know, and and really when we we when we first meet Betty and Rita, this is the, they're both innocents in a way.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, you know, Betty's just newly arrived in Hollywood, she's all sort of excited about the possibilities. But Rita, you know, she's she's a blank slate. She's also an innocent. She's 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 uncontaminated by her past, she doesn't know who she is. Then later on, in a way, we see the shadow side of both of them. And at the same time, they're each other's shadow.
1: Uh, and there we are. Wow! No, it's it, it it's it's the film that that begs a repeat viewing for starters. And like you say, one of just literally, I mean, one of the first courses I ever did about screenwriting was the difference between screenwriting and real life is that screenplays are meant to make sense. Which, like you say, Lynch goes sod that. <laughs> I mean, he knows how to do it because he's done it in you know the Elephant Man and whatever else. So he does. It's not like he doesn't know, but. He has so much fun in deconstructing even expectations, never mind just sense of narrative, yes.
3: narrative. And the whole process of making the film, just as an aside, you know, because it was originally made as a television series that got rejected, you know, he could have given up. Mm. Because it all, but he didn't. And, you know, he went through this very playful process of just saying, oh, what happens if I just... You know, it's almost like he, he couldn't have arrived at this film, which is arguably his most successful film. Uh, had he not gone through that process of failure... And then surrendered to this creative process of just seeing what happens if I juxtapose things that aren't supposed together to go together, uh, and, and break all the rules and see what happens.
1: I didn't know. I didn't know it was a TV program before. I never knew that yeah. part of the process.
3: You know, and so he's prepared to fail. You know, and, and I, that's what I love about him. You know, and so many of his films, I feel don't really work but he, he's prepared to get, undergo that process and the emotional charge of that film just to finish comes from club silencio you know because arguably it could be very very dark uh you know a very very nihilistic you know it, it could feel very unresolved but there's Club Silencio to me is the emotional charge of that film that absolutely elevates. I I never failed to be moved to tears by that scene because it points to the mystery beyond which we can never really know, and the longing and the loss that we all feel. You know, and he really captures that. Uh, and and to me, that that is the other key to unlocking the movie and understanding it's uh, it's both its psychological and its emotional heartbeat.
1: Brilliant look, uh, I feel very much schooled on that because it's a film I watch and I still don't understand, but I keep coming back, hoping, and, and I won't stop. Uh, this gives me more fuel. Uh, moving on five years, then, we're going to go to Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Do you want to tell us what, what it is about? I mean, a wonderful straddle between dreams and real life and the metaphor, I mean, the reality of war.
3: You know, this this film also really affects me the time. Tar- I think the ending particularly mm. is really heartbreaking. It's a film about, uh, ostensibly, about uh, fascist Spain, about the beginning of Franco's mm. dictatorship. Mm. And and this film, Pan's Labyrinth, which actually in the, in the Spanish is the labyrinth of the faun. Uh, and, and it's actually quite important to make that distinction. Del Toro actually said, you know, the faun isn't Pan. Pan, I just mentioned the trickster archetype in mm. relation to... Um, Lynch pan uh you know it's the root of the word pandemic pan wants to cause chaos the fawn symbolically is a psychopomp the fawn is a guide that crosses the thresholds between worlds
1: oh, didn't know that.
3: the fawn is part animal and part human so the fawn represents this constellation of matter and spirit and this constellation of of human and other and the labyrinth is symbolic of uh, a puzzle, an enigma to be solved. It's symbolic of transformation through suffering. And so with Ophelia, this young girl, you know, um, particularly already her father has died and, and and through, in the film, her mother dies in childbirth. So ostensibly she's an orphan mm. and she represents the young or- the orphan, uh, orphan archetype. But in a way, the whole film is about the Jungian individuation process, which is the process of the death of the self, the death of the ego, effectively, in order to achieve psychological wholeness. And I love this film because it's a film about childhood that's not aimed at children, which I think is incredibly hard to pull off. And uh, I think Del Toro does this through this juxtaposition of, of of the of the absolute violence and trauma that is going on in this external reality yeah. of um, the world of Captain Vidal, who's trying to hunt down. Um, The uh, Macari, who are fighting against the fascist fascist dictatorship. Um, And and so that provides a counterpoint to this fantastical world of the labyrinth. Interestingly, the labyrinth isn't, you know, there are some readings of this film that say, you know, well, it's, it's, it's all in Ophelia's mind. It's to compensate for the unbearable reality of the traumatic experience. Of being a child in this place. But actually, the labyrinth also, you know, I feel like the this labyrinth is, is a mirror world that also constellates good and bad. And, you know, it the Jungian reading to me that is fascinating in this film is, you know, um, in the labyrinth, uh Ophelia is given three tasks by the fawn, you know, um, that instigate her process of um becoming whole mm. you know so she enters the enters the labyrinth as a child as and you and she accesses this world because she loves fairy tales so she's still as a child in contact with this fairy tale intuitive self whereas the, the captain uh, uh signifies the authoritarian father figure he's a father archetype arguably he symbolizes um you know these patriarchal values that are absolutely split off from the unconscious that split off from the imagination and intuitive processes and creativity. And it's it's as a consequence of being cut off from this that, that the violence and the sadism ensues, you know. And he's, uh, you know, he ha- we've got the symbol of the clock that was given to him by his father that symbolises chronological linear time. You know, he's ruled by the authoritarian figure of Kronos Father time, and he's split from his own unconscious. Whereas Ophelia gets to go into the labyrinth. But the thing is, she uh, experiences temptation. The fawn tells her not to eat anything in the labyrinth. And she does. She eats a grape. Uh, and so the labyrinth is a, becomes a scary place. And the fawn, you know, uh, becomes enraged. He's not just this kindly figure. You know, it's not just this utopian escape his fantasy it it, it mirrors that the trauma and the horror of the world above uh, but the difference is is that it's the it's Ophelia's guilt at eating the grape that in a way um she loses her innocence but it, it's part of her psychological growth and unlike the captain she has to learn to take responsibility for her guilt you know, and this is the great kind of like moral you know all fairy tales are guides they can all be read as guides you know and so this is the moral in the tale and according to young uh it's it's the great crisis of of, of modern humanity that we've lost contact with the myths and symbols of fairy tales and and this is what's so beautiful um and generous about this film is that it's a fairy tale for adults that helps us connect with um these symbols of the psyche through uh, Ophelia and the labyrinth. And interestingly, also the character of Mercedes. Go on, carry on. Who is the other mother figure? You know, and she, at the end, uh, Ophelia is effect- effectively, you know, what she's enacting is a death of self. She chooses to die so that her brother can live. And it's Ophelia, uh, sorry, Mercedes is the mother figure who's going to raise uh the son, the saviour son, if you like, and break the cycle of violence. Uh, so it, can, it speaks this what you were talking earlier about this metaphoric third presence. Mm. In, in the instance of this film, the son, the baby, uh, the, the, the son and heir of the captain, this metaphorical third presence, who is going to give birth to uh, the potential for something new to emerge uh, through the death of Ophelia.
1: I think, I mean, it's fascinating that, that, Fairy Tales can do it so simply because, I mean, in, in real simple terms, it's like growing up is essentially defying authority, which obviously if you think of the film being the shadow that's about to take over Spain as, as a fascist regime, then defying authority was going to take a long time, wasn't it, for, for Spain yes. in many senses. And and, and in a way, the the, the the sort of evil side of it that comes around because she does it, she angers the, the, the authority. I, mean, it's, it's, I just think it's, yes. it's such a simple trigger.
3: That it's it, it it makes you question you know, um in a way Captain Vidal's authority goes unquestioned by his men, and actually mm. it's the doctor who belongs to the um the, the renegades who uh challenges the doctor uh sorry, challenges the captain that he is uh unquestionably following authority, but also the fawn uh, uh, demands that um Ophelia doesn't question his authority. So there's there's this really interesting tension here between the authority of the ego and the thinking mind versus the authority, so to speak, of the collective unconscious and of creativity. But which authority do we listen to? Which authority do we give power to?
1: Also, I don't know if you've seen uh, Keila Janice's documentary about folk horror, where she basically goes, a, it's a brilliant three-hour epic about folk horror around the world. And what I learned about the way that British people see folk horror, because she starts off with, like, Wicker Man, Blood and Satan's Claw, um, which and Fanny General, which are considered the cornerstones of the genre. And then she just goes mm. out around the world. And what you realise is, and Pan's Labyrinth's a good example, is that in British thing, it's always about this thing that's in the countryside that's going to get us if we don't control nature. Whereas non-British folklore, for want of a better expression, tends to be about... Our, having a symbiotic relationship with nature and, and, being, and being collegiate with it as opposed to against it.
3: Yes, and it's the nature of earth and matter. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're connected to matter and we're connected to air and it's about the integration. In Jungian psycho- psychoanalytic terms, it's about the integration of opposites. Mm. You know, so it's the integration of matter um, with spirit, nature, uh, and and the body with with the ephemeral. And, and so the, the labyrinth is a place where both these things occur. Mm. Interestingly, also, De Toro was uh, influenced by Alice in Wonderland, which is a very British fairy tale.
1: True, true. Uh, but just thinking about like the way that we treat folklore, you know, it's like we, we, we talk about it like we, we're going to fear what's it what in the places we don't know and we're going to beat it, whereas other cultures, they tend to talk about it in... There's a bit, you know, you realise how you're conditioned into thinking one way. And I even saw in my writing that I was writing against... I didn't know I was doing it, but I was doing this Norwegian one and I didn't realize I was doing something that was against my instincts as I understood how folklore works because of what we're taught um, or how we're taught it. Sorry, just as I don't mean like in school, just generally what you would receive wisdom. Right. We're going to fast forward to a very current film, a film that's been getting tongues of wagging everywhere uh, because it just, the, the, I mean, did well in the box office for a film of this budget. Critically, it's been acclaimed everywhere. I'm talking about Charlotte Wells' film, uh, After Sun. Do you want to talk about... I'm guessing you must have seen it at the cinema then.
3: Yes, I saw this at Hebden Bridge Pitchen House, a fantastic independent cinema uh, in West Yorkshire. Um, so I've picked After really because I feel, you know, Charlotte Wells is, uh, although ostensibly, it seems like a very different film. It's very contemporary. Uh, but. You know, she really, to me, is part of this lineage of film directors who are using cinematography to engage with liminal spaces as a way to explore the unconscious and the role of the unconscious in telling stories about the self. And interestingly, this this film, Afterson, uh, is talked about and was marketed as a coming-of-age story. But to me, the real story is... Uh, you know what's clever and radical and dynamic about this this film is that it's a story about uh, uh that's telling um it's a story about trauma particularly about you know and, and it's hinted at in the title afterstone it's about the traumatic aftermath mm. of a young woman um growing up in the aftermath of her father's suicide so yeah. yes it's, it's a memory imagine- isn't
1: it it's a me- it's, it's a childhood recapturing a memory isn't it the film in itself
3: but it's it's more than that because, okay. and I think this is what's so fascinating to me uh, about the film is, you know, um, so many so many films now are, have a traumatic theme. You know, trauma. Um, you know, we're, we're going through like a, a, an accelerated, um, if you like, um, collective uh, revisioning of our understanding of trauma as something that. Uh, uh, potentially that we all have experience of trauma, you know. But how do we tell a story about trauma? And, and we're seeing it in films, we're seeing it in books, uh, trauma memoirs, trauma writing, trauma fiction. And normally, the way that trauma is handled is as we see it as a backflash. And I think what's fascinating about *After Sun* is that Charlotte Wells is disrupting this device of backflash because through this device of having um, the, uh, the adult Sophia. Still has the film of the childhood holiday. Uh, It's not just about backflashes, it's about this replay. Mm. It's about back and forth between past and present um, in a way that both foreshadows the trauma and is a memory of the trauma and tells the story without um, implicitly. So the story is embedded, the the suicide is never referred to, it's never mentioned. Neither is Sophia's grief. Um, So this story, this, this story of a father and daughter going on holiday together to a Turkish resort um, that is ostensibly um, uh, we associate with happy childhood memories. Um, you know, the real story is taking place on the outside of this, and I think that's what's so clever about the film. And, and she does this, um, you know, right at the beginning, we see this film being um, mashed up, and, and that correlates, that, that visualises um, the, the traumatic repetition, the way that trauma is constantly uh the, the traumatic event is constantly invading the present, you know, mm. so this constantly rewinding and replaying uh visually shows this traumatic repetition, but also um not only that we get this liminal space of the dance floor which i absolutely love and we have these strobes you know and it's and and again it's like visually uh showing or communicating these sort of flashes and glimpses we get of insights into this unconscious world that constellates past and present where the father is eternally there they're eternally dancing on this on this dance floor together and i think that's again that's that's the emotional heartbeat of the film it's so powerful and both i've seen this film twice now and both times i cried at the end
1: do you, do you think in a way that that's a, the 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 way the film wo- plays is is this idea that we can hold on to a memory to a certain yes. point and almost like stop remembering the bit that almost not to not that the trauma goes away but there's a, there's a control trying to control wherever the trauma is by going there was this thing this happy time
3: and um, absolutely i mean you know all storytelling you like mm. if you like um is a con- trauma is a container mm. because and, and and story is a container for story specifically symbolism is a container for trauma and so we've got this this liminal space of the dance floor that's out of time that co- again correlates to the Jungian worldview of time mm. as being um non-chronological as being belonging to a unified field outside of herself and so in a way it's it's you know she's using the imagination she's you know in the film that let's i mean charlotte wells talks about the, the, the film as being a form of emotional autobiography yeah yeah um, yeah. i've
1: heard her say that
3: which is fascinating so it's this idea that she's using fiction to tell a deep psychological truth And so in a way, this liminal space of the dance floor is a way of containing the memory and holding the memory and preserving the memory. But it's not just a memory, is it? Because this dance floor never happened. There's a dance floor of of the child Sophie
2: Mm.
3: in the Turkish resort dancing with her father. That's the memory. But this other um, image of the adult Sophie dancing with her father, that's invented. But it's uh, it's accessing this deeper place uh, outside of time where... All realities exist, all possibilities exist all at once.
1: And, and cinema cinema gives you the freedom to do that as well. That's, that's
3: you know, in, in lots of ways, it, 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 it kind of echoes what Lynch is doing in Mulholland Drive, but in a way that uh, is restorative, you know, that, fo- that, that focus on, focuses on the uh, creative healing as- aspect of the site rather than the shadow, the darkness and the shadow.
1: It's interesting about the, the, the autobiographical element she talks about because she also says she, she links that to... She likes to capture just found, com- you know, caught conversations. No, not like not whole speeches, and but like, and then she sort of cut and paste them together like their biography. Even though they could have come from different people, she likes to put them together into into one work, which I thought was a really interesting thing. You know, that you pick the ones that suit, or you can change the tone. Even it might be said one way, and you re you re you recycle it in something else. But but the way her imagination is trying to grasp it to stories is to keep finding these things that become Absolutely. building blocks.
3: And, and, you know, and this is creativity, you know, creativity essentially sees connection between things that, you know, rationally speaking, aren't supposed to go together. Mm. So this is a great example of that at work.
1: No, no, she's a, she's a fast, it was a fast interview actually, I listen to. Uh, well look, that uh, brings us to the end of uh, three films that have impacted everything in my adult life. That was a, that was a fascinating deep dive, uh, I certainly, I certainly learned a lot about Pan's Labyrinth. I hadn't appreciated, and I thought, I thought, I thought about that a lot because I just had the, I had the basic concept of, um, always of the idea of a of a girl who's living in the nightmare of civil war breaking out and fascism going to take over the country. So she invents this other horror in her mind to 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 to, to downplay that. That was always kind of how I saw the film. But you you've made it all the more richer. Um, now before you go, um. Let's talk about what you've got on the horizon. Uh, You're going to be offering some courses called "Write Your Undiscovered Self." Do you want to talk about what that is and what and how? Yes. So,
3: um, "Write Your Undiscovered Self" is a four-week course that I've developed um, off the back of my PhD. So, in in my PhD, which was applying creative uh, Jungian psychoanalysis to creative writing, that was about uh, me finding a way to write about my own um, experience of childhood trauma and using jungian strategies of of how he how he uses the imagination specifically the technique of active imagination mm. to enter into the world of the unconscious as a way to bring it into conscious awareness you know you know on the on, on the understanding that reality is mutable and that we can co-create it to, uh, and invent a reality um, you know um through the stories that we tell you know all really all our understanding of reality we can only know reality through stories so the course is um it's uh packaging all my research in an accessible way um because once i'd worked out how to do it for myself i realized well this is a tool that i can use now mm. to help others uh as a way to negotiate um not just trauma but the challenges of everyday life we all face blocks we all face points in our life where we feel stuck so i've developed a four week course underpinned by these strategies Young Jungian Psychoanalysis that uses writing as a way to access the unconscious to facilitate uh, creativity and psychological growth.
1: And who's that course aimed at?
3: Like I said, it's aimed at, uh, it's not just for writers, it's oh. aimed at any, because it focuses on process rather than outcome. Hmm. I've had people attend my courses who are yoga practitioners, who uh, have a creative practice in music or who are visual artists, who uh, work working therapy or social work. So it literally is a tool, any, mm. you know, um uh to to uh engage with uh how we can use creative processes as a form of psychological growth.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. Now one last question because obviously you've you've, you've spent a lot of time on your on your PhD, as the nature of a PhD is um and i'm just fascinated and this is a question i ask documentarians so just when you enter a piece of work like that you have a perception of certain things of how you see the world or, or don't see the world or what for you is the biggest revelation going through the process of the phd that you as a discovery for you what was, um, what was you That's what was a the great big-
3: question Stuart. thank you for asking now i've stepped away from it yes. i think the biggest revelation when i set out to do this phd
2: hmm.
3: um it was to find a way to, to write about a difficult childhood experience that I hadn't really grappled with.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: The reason I was interested in Jung is that I'd had an experience of Jungian psychoanalysis prior to that. So I was interested in how I could use um, this idea that my dreams were uh, pointing to a parallel mirror re- reality that pointed to a psychological truth behind my experiences. Mm-hmm. So that was the starting point. Uh, but at the end of it, you know, seven years ago, when I embarked on this process, I thought I was going to uh, complete it with a, uh, a perfectly formed collection of short stories ready to send out to agents and publishers' um, roles. And, and, and what I learned through the process was the, val- uh, the value process itself. You know, and to and to let go of my own ego attachment to outcome and to productivity, and to fully commit to the process as being uh, transformative in its and, and of value in and of its own right. And um, what I came out of the PhD process was, you know, I never expected to, in my husband's words, I know a shit ton about Jungian psychoanalysis. You know that complete surprise you know I never expected to come out an expert in this area at all but it was you know I went with my gut and it's it's what drew me it's what called me it's what fascinated me and it's only now that after seven years I've worked out what it is the story that I want to tell and I've embarked on writing an autobiographical novel uh set in a surreal shadow world
1: well best of luck thank you that's all I can say to that that sounds amazing uh well it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time to Britflix podcast
3: Thank you so much for inviting me, Stuart. It's been an absolute delight to talk talk to
1: you.